0: Welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers
1: and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our behavior, and we do it
0: with a behavioral science lens. In many of our episodes, we talk to researchers who have recently compiled uh, years of their research and observations into a book. And we talk with them about what they've written. And now that's pretty cool but we think there's more to behavioral science than just the stuff that lands on the bestseller list.
1: Yeah, and this is one of those episodes. So today we're talking to an old pal of ours, Lania Gandhi. Lania is working on her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania, but the topic of her PhD is not what we wanted to talk to her about. Lania is working on something called nudge cartography, and we think it's so important
0: for the field of behavioral science, we wanted to share it with you. Okay. A lot of groovers know about nudges, those almost imperceptible, invisible ways that we can influence people's behavior. And you probably know a lot about cartography, the art and science of map making. But you probably don't know about the project being undertaken at the University of Pennsylvania to map the world of nudges. They are attempting to build a map that shows a unified view of the world of nudges. It's like putting the shorelines where the land meets up with the water and all that stuff, except for it's about nudges, Tim. (laughs)
1: Nice metaphor, by the way. It is. And it's a project that has a very important initiative. And it was started by Duncan Watts at Penn. And we'll talk about him in just a little while. But in this episode, you're going to hear from Lania as she describes some of the things that she's having to do to create this map, which is basically a carefully coded database of scientific
0: studies in behavioral science. We'll also talk about the importance of slowing science down. To really just let it run the scientific course instead of trying to rush things, like we saw during the pandemic when the first studies came out about wearing masks, followed by more studies that contradicted the first ones, followed by, well, you remember. Yeah, I I, I do. It was a mess. But it wouldn't have been so messy if we'd waited for the science to do its job. You know, to use the scientific method and to just wait until we knew conclusively what the story was on wearing masks. How true. It was just hard, it was just hard. Yeah, right. yeah, very, very true. I also wanna share sort of a
1: personal note about the great community of people who study and practice behavioral science, and Linea specifically. Like, she and I first met in 2013 when she was an intern at Ideas42.
0: If you don't know about Ideas42, check out the link in the episode notes. It's a cool organization. Since her days at Idea42, Lania has also been a lecturer at Wharton, an adjunct professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, she was Richard Thaler's TA there, by the way. Not a bad uh, little uh, element there. <laughs> no. She founded a consulting firm called Behavioral Sight. And of course, she is now completing her PhD from Penn. Yeah. So Kurt and I are both grateful to the work
1: in the field uh, with such generous people. And Linnea is just a great example of someone who gave me a leg up 10 years ago, and we've stayed in touch ever since. So thanks, Linnea, for
0: helping me find my groove. With that, we hope you sit back with a cup full of nudge cartography and enjoy our conversation with Linnea Gandhi.
1: Linnea Gandhi, welcome back to Behavioral Grooves.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: My gosh, we just always love chatting with you. We end up talking about crazy things from crushing on statistics to project managing Danny Kahneman, Cast Unseen, Olivier Sibony. It's like, you never know where the conversation is gonna go. But there is something specific we wanna talk to you about today, and that is nudge cartography. Now, to get to that, maybe we should unpack the CSS lab. First. Would that make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, tell us what is the CSS Lab and what do you guys do there?
2: So, the CSS Lab stands for Computational Social Science Lab. It's based at the University of Pennsylvania, and it was founded by Professor Duncan Watts. It started a couple of years ago and has grown really fast since then. It spans three different groups at University of Pennsylvania, which Duncan is actually appointed in. Mm-hmm. So, communications. Engineering, Computer Science, and uh, my Group, which is the Operations, Information, and Decisions group, the decisions part of it.
1: What, what did he want out of this? Uh, it, it's a big, bold thing to do to try to coalesce all this stuff.
2: Oh, wow. You know, you will have to ask him about his intent. The way I see it, I'll give you my, my gist of it, is after I discovered it, spent some time in it, spent some time in other areas at Wharton, in um, Penn, it felt like home to me. It felt like the the place where I would have the greatest likelihood of being able to take big swings at projects with large sets of data, or with large impact, or with low likelihood of success, but again, would have a really high impact if they succeeded, and and be able to use skills from machine learning as well as psychology and marry that all together. So for me, it's a lab that pursues really big, ambitious projects that require a combination of social science and computational tools
0: it sounds very like i would be lost the f- second i walk through the door <laughs> coming into it hey you got computational methods which i'm just like blows me away that's, so it's your it, favorite oh my god you know that's not true tim so help our listeners understand what it is that you're actually doing in a day-to-day kind of work within the lab and, and and what are some of the outputs that you're looking to understand
2: So my work in the lab centers around one module okay. a collection of projects that we call integrative experimentation or cartography it has to do with unifying a lot of the evidence in a given field or against a given question or generating a set of evidence around a given question in a really large scale way to try to answer a big theoretical question, like what makes teams synergistic or not synergistic? Meaning when is it better for individuals to do a task versus a group of individuals to do it together? That's one of the questions that one of our projects tries to answer. And actually, that's that's why I love the word cartography to describe the initiative. And it, I would say it's a specific instantiation of this slower science that we've been talking about. When I think about maps too with this project, it's it's a very modest map. So don't think Google Maps. Maybe <laughs> ten years from now, if I have found a place to land after graduation, maybe we'll be closer to Google Maps. But right now, we're we're in the 1400s. <laughs> we're you know with the monks that have been piecing together different accounts from explorers and Christopher Columbus and whatnot to try to patch together what they call the Mappa Mundi in Italy that's where we are it's it is bad it's 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 going to have myths in it it's going to have gaps and holes but that's what we're trying to build today because if we start pulling together all that evidence into a single place with a shared set of parameters that is going to set us up for success for the google maps correlate you know years and years from now
1: okay kurt so nudge cartography let's just start with the cartography part right it's map making it's putting together diagrams of rivers roads oceans elevations all the terrain into a single piece of paper for the purpose of creating a perspective to help us navigate
0: right, right. except for this isn't a map of land in different places it's not the mappa mundi is that how you say it uh, scholars yeah. believe originated in england near the beginning of the 14th century oh. You are Uh, so scholarly. And and the term map of Mundi is a Latin for map of the world. You know, little did they know that the map that they had in the 14th century was missing huge, huge chunks of the world. But, you know, that's... But they thought, they thought that it was the whole world, right? They thought that it was the whole world. And what I think, what's interesting, and the reason we bring up the Latin and feel all, all talking why do i say latin in that i don't know of it's, it's, it's just weird. latin yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't know either but we bring it up because w- when they thought they had the entire world mapped out what luna is doing is they're trying to to map the entire world of nudges but they luckily know that they don't have the whole world that that is a map that is constantly being built out to expand the edges but also fill in the pieces in between.
1: Yeah, and and I want to point out that it's sort of if we take that metaphor of a map being like rivers and roads and elevation and terrain and all those kinds of things, the CSS lab is compiling all different kinds of data in order to create this map. So, it's not just what happens with nudges around defaults. They're studying nudges around defaults and uh, all types of influence and decision making tools in order to better understand what, you know, how nudges work overall to create this big picture.
0: Yeah. And so, again, we use maps to help us navigate in the unknown places. And what I love about this project that Linnea is working on is it's here to help us navigate through the unknowns of behavior to help us understand, all right, if I move from here to here, this is what I'm going to get. It helps us understand the larger landscape of behavioral science.
1: Yeah. Okay. So now let's hear how she's going to do it.
2: They do it by running many combinations of tasks, many combinations of individuals, many combinations of how those individuals are combined for the task to try to more holistically answer a question that historically in social science, we might answer them in a much more piecemeal way. One study here, one study there in this vast multidimensional space. So I live on the umbrella of that cartographical, you know, large scale experimental set of projects.
0: So we asked if these experiments would be highly theoretical or very solution oriented.
2: Social science could be run more efficiently and effectively answering questions if, Instead of going about it piecemeal siloed across departments or techniques, we had one problem that we cared about in the world, one question we wanted to answer, and then we drew on all the data sets, all the skills that we need in order to answer it and do it in what is not just a descriptive or explanatory way, but start looking out of sample prediction. How well can our answers to these questions actually work in the future out of sample or out of distribution? So I think it's actually, by definition, everything that we work on in the lab is meant to be useful in that way.
0: And if I'm understanding this right, what you're doing is saying, let's take this and let's actually look at some of those other situations, other contexts, and let's make sure, let's find the robustness of what we're trying to identify. Is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah. To to borrow how Duncan and...
0: Again, she's talking
1: about Duncan Watts, the founder of the CSS lab at Penn.
2: His colleagues talk about it in a, a recent behavioral and brain sciences paper. It's called Beyond Playing 20 Questions with Nature. You know, we often operate in this one-at-a-time world. Yeah. I run one experiment in one setting with one set of people, with one set of stimuli, with one dependent variable measured in one way, you know, and analyzed in one way or you know, one set of ways. And I put that out there and communicate it that often the inferences that are made then are much more general. I expect as a consumer of research that that will copy-paste to some degree (laughs) when I change the population or the timing or something slight about the stimulus or something slight about the dependent variable, and then I might be disappointed when that doesn't work. So a lot of that is driven by this one-at-a-time nature of research, which, as we've talked about before, uh, either historically take as much of the evidence base that you can get through some defined inclusion criteria, and map them across all the parameters of interest to you, or uh, going forward, run all the experiments, varying systematically all the parameters of interest to you, or doing both of those at once. Of course, there are limitations in both ways, uh, which we can dig into if you want.
1: Okay, so this is a really cool objective for the CSS lab. So, for example, they'd like to be able to say that with a high degree of confidence in some specific or generalizable situation that this group of tasks are better off worked on by individuals and this other set of tasks are better off worked on by groups. So that in and of itself just kind of gets us thinking about oh so now like if i'm in hr and i'm curious about you know how i should coach managers and leaders about how to get something done well i could actually go to something like like this like this database this this map and say well how would these kinds of tasks that I'm thinking about leaders doing, how would that work? Should I coach them to say, well, you should always have teams work on this, or it might be better if you have individuals working on it? Right. And what
0: I like about what they're talking about here and what Linnea says is it it's like we were able to put a map out of potholes in the road that <laughs> need to be attended to, right? And in Minnesota, this is a big thing. Come every spring, it would be great. We have a map of all the potholes, Right. Now other researchers can go out and understand where those potholes are and what do I need to fill those in? And Tim, potholes here are metaphors. You get that? That's like gaps <laughs> in the research. Did you, did you get that? I got that. Okay. Just making sure because sometimes it's, a, you know, we can be slow in those areas. I volunteer for
1: being the slow one. Uh, so, okay. So what we also asked her about, her interest in slow science. And this is a criticism that uh, came to light during the pandemic when you know, we teed this up at the introduction, right? When masks were first thought that they made a difference and then the research came out and said that they don't make a difference. And then research came out and said, no, that they do. And all of those cl- just came into the world too fast. That, I mean, that's, that,
0: that's really what slow science is about is slowing down. Right, and that makes a lot of difference as we think through um, how science is done and the importance of it. So let's hear what Linnea says here.
2: I'm a big believer in slow science, although I will be the first to admit that I get pulled by the tides of fast science, especially when I'm thinking about going in the job market next year. One of the things that I that gets me up out of bed, that makes me really want to be part of this project team day in and day out, and know that I feel that I'm doing the right thing, is if I think about what the point of social science is or science is at the highest level, when someone asks a scientist about what their job is, it often points back to producing generalizable knowledge. And so if the whole point, if if one of the central points of the scientific industry is to produce generalizable knowledge, then what are we doing producing one-off little papers that don't necessarily generalize? And so I think doing this slow science in the spirit of trying to produce something that is more generalizable, or at least can identify the boundaries of generalizability, Like that's that's what we should be incentivizing, putting money and making less risky to do, because right now it is really risky for a lot of us to engage in.
0: Okay. So we want to slow science down to make sure that we're doing it right. That's the gist of this. And I think there's a lot more than what Linnea even talks about here as we think about the replication crisis, we think about some of the other things that are going on in the behavioral science world, but that systematic approach to say, we want to figure out how to not just do science and get it done, but we want to do science and get it done right. And I think one of the key things, Tim, is this idea about generalizability of that knowledge.
1: Ah yeah so it isn't just about producing a paper actually she said if one of the central points of science is, scientific industry is to produce generalizable knowledge then what we're doing right now unfortunately is just producing these little one-off
0: papers that don't necessarily generalize and that's a problem yeah we need to do it differently we need to think about this in a very different perspective slow things down think about, all right, is this important? I mean, in a lot of science, and this, you know, this was kind of the conversation we had, or I had with Adam Mastiosi, right? This idea mm-hmm. that we have all these little kind of slivers of science, and yeah, they mm-hmm. add to the body of knowledge, but are they making big impacts? Uh, you know, right. is is it important to understand that the color orange makes, you know, if I see it after eating an apple changes the way I view that apple versus if I eat it, see color orange after eating a banana. Yeah, it might change. It might be, might actually have some significance, but does it make a difference? And is it generalizable to larger and bigger things?
1: In the world of marketing, I think about the number of times that marketers are wondering about, is this email going to be effective? And so they create an A-B test and they say, well, here's language A and here's language B. So we're going to test A versus B, and we're going to learn something about how that language impacted people in that particular situation. But they aren't contributing necessarily to the bigger picture of,
0: do emails work? <laughs> or is Or do, what is it about these emails that works that or works? doesn't work? We know that in this situation, in this A-B test, B worked better than A. Great. But now the next time I create an email, what I want to be able to do is I want to be able to go, I I don't want to have to test an A, B again. I want to go, B works better in these types of situations. And so this is that type of situation. So therefore I should be using a B type email versus an A type, which might work better in a different type of situation. I I think the same thing could be said for some HR departments where... Mm -hmm. They're developing one-off programs and different pieces, and they're not bringing some of that larger perspective, that larger science. And so it isn't necessarily, you know, trying to figure out how their policies impact the larger performance or citizenship or engagement, et cetera, all of that. So,
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree that we talk about being strategic uh, in the corporate world, but a lot of times that just means attending to to the business strategies, not really learning our discipline better. And and I think one of the things that comes to my mind when thinking about this conversation with Lania is how could the discipline of marketing be better? How could the discipline around HR be better? And that would be amassing a bigger picture view,
0: taking a new perspective. And again, it comes back to slowing things down to a certain degree, which is almost antithetical in in business sometimes, right? I had this conversation with a client I was just working on. Sometimes we need to actually go slower to move faster. We need to touch base on those things. And so I think that's a really good, it's a really good analogy. Science is, and in, in at least from the, this perspective, probably needs to slow down. We might need to slow down other things as well in order to make sure that we're creating good results that aren't just one-offs that are more generalizable. Did I say that right? I think you did. I think oh that turns out God. perfectly. Well done. Man, yeah. my, my tongue and my lips and my mouth actually worked all together there. That was pretty crazy. Okay. We've talked about cartography. We've talked about slowing science down and the idea of generalization. But what about the term nudge? Have we agreed on what a nudge is and what it isn't?
2: Well, to clarify, what I'm doing is inclusive of choice architecture techniques. So it's way broader than the definition of a nudge. Well, choice architecture would be changes to processes, incentives, layouts, communications, pretty much anything surrounding the environment of a given choice or behavior. It's one of those definitions that I both love and hate because it kind of seems like everything, (laughs) (laughs) but often they're psychologically informed and that's really the, the starting point to think about them being choice architecture. I'm thinking about the psychological experience of going through this decision choice or behavioral process and shifting an element of it or two to be more concordant with how humans think, choose and behave. A nudge more specifically is often defined uh, as changing choice architecture In a direction that you're pretty sure is welfare improving for the individual uh, or group of individual involved, does not restrict options, they don't remove options in any way, and often doesn't involve uh, incentives in any way more than micro incentives or reframing incentives. So it's not really changing the economic calculus of the choice or decision, but we, we are inclusive of broader sets of choice architecture interventions because I am interested in that contrast.
1: Then we asked Lania to get into a bit more detail about what might make it into the database of nudges. Okay, so that's great. So we have both the paternalistic, we think that it's good for you, and there's the libertarian side of it where we think mm-hmm. that you still have the right to decide uh, for yourself uh, and you're you're not being influenced unduly by the size of the reward that, that might come from it. That's what the nudges are. and And so this database is going to have a monster number of nudge experiments, outcomes, what, what would be important to include in this database in order to make it a good map?
2: So one of the things that we thought very carefully about is not just a strict inclusion, like experiments that has to be using randomized control experiments as a method and choice architectures and intervention, but also prioritization criteria. So given a lot of the debates about credibility and generalizability, you know, How can we narrow what we include down a little bit further to start with what we think might be the most solid findings, um, most likely to be? I mean, if I had endless time and money, we would code everything, but we can only code so much every week. And so we're starting to be a narrower set of studies that have at least 100 uh, units of analysis per evaluated cell. So control group, treatment group have to have at least 100 analyzed units inside it. Uh, and then the behavior that's trying to be changed has to be real, can't be hypothetical.
1: And, and what is a, a unit? Is that a person? Is that a subject? A participant? If often
2: it's a subject. Uh, so if you might, however, have uh, a certain number of people within an online learning environment randomized across treatments and control groups. And then the unit of analysis that's actually happening might be at the level of the courses that they're taking. And so you'd have more courses than individuals because each individual might be taking part in more than one course. Okay. And we focus on that <coughs> lower level unit of analysis for our, our inclusion criteria to make sure there's at least 100 per group to to analyze. And that's for considerations about power. Like, is the finding that's actually happening in this paper more likely to be, I don't like using the word true, but less likely to be a random flu? Yes. Now if, again, if I had time and money, I'd code all of them. I just can't. And so we also further narrowed it down to that set for now.
0: And again, as we're talking about this map that is based in the you know fifteen hundreds, and these monks are making it. <laughs> yeah. What is how would somebody then be able to look at this map and say, "Oh, what am I trying to find?"
2: Yeah. So at the end of the day, right now. This will change. We have 109 experiments coded. That's over 300 interventions across those experiments, each which has an effect size estimation against the given control group in that experiment. They span over 20 countries, and the variables that we've coded them against, there's, I believe, over 400 now. So we've coded uh, and continue to code these experiments across those variables. And then Our goal is to produce a a database, or we we have produced a database, that also has a UI attached to it. So we're looking at a user experience that's going to enable you to do all four types of analyses with a lot less pain and effort than you have to do now.
1: Who is a user? Who's a typical user of this?
2: A user could be you. could be a practitioner. It could also be an academic researcher. So if I start from the practitioner side, my hope is to solve a pain point that I experienced for years. but never really thought about solving until I saw Duncan's work, which is every time I'm on a project and a client wants to know well, what nudge works best, what should I try? I spend the weeks doing lit review and yeah. talking to experts and, and yeah, doing exploratory analyses, which are really important to do. But at the end of the day, when I'm trying to list the relevant concepts or ideas, the best guesses, and they're definitely not empirically grounded, right? It's all qualitative. It's re- not even reproducible. If, Kurt did it and Tim did it, we would maybe come up with the same answers, but we'd get there in very different ways. And if Kurt did another day, it might vary as well. What I'm trying to produce is a database where you put in the parameters that define the context that you're dealing with. It could be parameters about the individuals, parameters about the behavior, uh, like does the behavior require traveling somewhere? Does it require planning? If you have certain interventions even in mind, you can put those parameters in. Geography, all of that, whatever filters you want, And then it would narrow down to the subset of experiments that have data that fit at least, say, five of those parameters, you know, within some bounds. And then that would very much speed up your literature review and being able to look at ideas. It could even suggest empirically a ranking of interventions to try, with the big caveat that it's overfitted to what people have tried in the past.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, so this is particularly important, I think, when we want to think about applying behavioral science to your work and life at home. Right, It's the database that helps you search on relevant criteria so you can get to the specific studies that would actually have something meaningful to say about your particular situation. And it can be
0: literally right at the tips of your fingers. Right. And what I like about what Linnea talked about here is that they were very specific in the types of research that they took in. They didn't just take in any research. It had to be you know, with a the good sense of variability that a lot of the parameters of good science were done with this. So this is really some again to build this database to build this map that they are doing. It's not based on oh some seafarers like story of the the big you know <laughs> sea monster in between this. So the cartographer writes the sea monster in. No, they're actually saying hey no, no the. We we got a, we gotta went out there and it's a whale. It's a, That's what it is. It's a whale. It's not a sea monster. And so that's what they're trying to to really do with this. That was a really bad analogy, wasn't it? I
1: like the sea monster analogy. Yeah, okay. okay. And then when I think about the application in that corporate world, if you're a marketer or an HR professional or a graphic designer and you've got a specific problem to solve, then you could have a map to go to that says, well, how have people responded in a general way? in these situations and uh, maybe even in a specific way that could really help you zero in on the problems that you're trying to solve
0: well particularly as it relates to any human dynamics right this is the idea of this is about nudges and those things that change behavior and thinking about all of the times when what we're trying to achieve within business is about behavior change this is going to be amazing and, you know, it's going to be a great tool that could be used by both academics in furthering their research and filling in those potholes, but <laughs> practitioners alike. I, I noticed that you really do like the potholes analogy. That That's, that's good. I, you know, oh. you wrote it.
1: I just read it, man. There you go. <laughs> well, with her fingers in so much data, we asked Lania about what generalizable observations regarding nudges and choice architecture are coming into view for her.
2: Well... One pattern that I've taken, and I, I apologize, I don't have I don't have the data behind this. So I could pull it up. Is it feels like there's actually a lot of the papers that are making it in are from Europe. Whoa. Um, and maybe that's, it, it was just surprising to me I, because I think of our field as always being predominantly US-centric, and it, they're yeah. still Western-centric for sure. But if you narrow it down to field studies that need a larger scale criterion, I've just been surprised by how many are not in the US.
0: And that's important to note. But then she hit us with a big stick. She asked a question that will get you and your friends in social science talking for some time. Check this out.
2: If we can't make predictions from the evidence base that we've already built, then what are we doing? Yeah. We're telling stories. I think it's important that people, yeah. like I think it's so important to think about research as products, not papers. Papers are not a product. Papers are marketing, right? They're not knowledge. They're communicating your knowledge. Very different.
1: It's a, an amazing observation, actually,
0: isn't it? Papers are not products, right? Yeah. If you can't make predictions from the evidence base that we've already built, then what are we doing? Oh. We're just telling stories. I mean, <laughs> all right. Smart. If you can't make predictions, right? You know, you're... You're just telling stories. It is the, and then the, this idea that papers are not products, I think is huge. That, Mm -hmm. that really what researchers need to be doing is it shouldn't be about the papers. This goes back into, we can, we could go off on many tangents on this, Tim, but this idea that what research is, is about understanding the world and understanding the world in my mind what research should be about is understanding the world and then being able to use that understanding to improve it. And that is the key. And so, so many times we, we tend to just, you know, feel like I have to get published. And and this is, I'm generalizing out to researchers, you know, it's publish or perish that, that whole mantra. Yes. And so, you know, so what? is the bigger question for me.
1: I agree. And I see two really important things. It, this, her comments emphasize the importance of replication and have good replicability of, of research so that we know something that is claimed in paper A actually gets played out in paper B and paper C and paper C and all these, these subsequent uh, pieces of research, that's, that's a plus. But the other side of it is when I think about Bussara's work with the Trier uh, stress test. Yeah. Right. So we have the Trier stress test in the United States and, and Western Europe and everybody gets nervous. People, you know, the participants get nervous when they stand up and talk in front of a group because public speaking is really nerve wracking. But when they go to Nairobi In Kenya, Kenyans love public speaking. Like it's a cultural thing. So there's no stress in that. So I think part of what this project could help do is also say, here's some commonalities in these regions under these circumstances with these kinds of um, environmental things going on. And here's some things that are different about the way that we respond. And I think that those insights could be invaluable.
0: I agree. And I, I love that component of it. Also, it's, it's interesting. I just thought of this, right? So she said, papers are not products. Papers are marketing. Yeah. And I'm just sitting here going, yeah. And you know, what's even worse is they're bad marketing because the papers are written in research journals in <laughs> academic speak that only other academics read. And so even if you are having great research that has, you know, outstanding kind of input or results that can be used and you can make predictions from them. Well, you're, you're not marketing that very well because you're writing to, you know, inside baseball people and only inside baseball people are going to be reading yeah. this stuff. And so that's not marketing. That's uh storytelling around a campfire with your own with your small little band of of Cub Scouts you know. <laughs> yeah, Nice observation
1: uh, Kurt and implications matter and one other thing I'd want to say is that I do feel like this project is sort of building the platform of research for the next generation
0: of not just researchers but practitioners as well. Yeah and I think academic research ought to be different from what happens in the commercial world. So I'm not saying yeah, that yeah. you shouldn't study some of these small things because sometimes that that may not have a real applicable kind of outcome. But as long as you're building the, the knowledge and the understanding that will then be able to contribute to a larger piece, I think that's the important piece. And I think Linnea and her team are doing that. Yeah. You
1: know, we finished our conversation with Leah talking about music, of course, and uh, she really couldn't help herself, from, you know, from doing a couple of things. First, of course, she relates music, you know, that she's listening to in the lab, you know, about the work that she's doing in the lab. So there's this lovely connection there. But second, you know, she took the opportunity to give shout outs to her lab mates and the folks at the University of Pennsylvania, both in the the behavioral decision sciences team who we have great affection for as well. And so let's just check out what she had to say there.
2: I take a lot of pride, I'll say, in being on the ground floor of the factory with my team. So I have these amazing research assistants, uh, all coming from the Masters of Behavioral and Decision Sciences group at Penn. Oh, cool. Uh, Four of them have been with me for over a year. God bless them for doing so. I hold on to them for dear life. And so with them, I'm doing a lot of the work of reading the papers and coding or auditing the coding that they've done. And when I have to read papers and do that, it's like just classical music or you know, it, it can't Cannot have words. But then there are other parts of the process where I'm building the infrastructure of the factory. So I'm building the template for people to code into, or I'm building the R code to pull the template down to check reliability or to produce the main database. Like we have we have a whole infrastructure built off of Google Sheets and R. So I would say it's like scotch tape and glue. but It's <laughs> extremely flexible. And you can build the next sort of machine in the pipeline yourself. Yeah. And so when I'm doing work that's more rote, or coding work, or oh, right now I've got a lot of author review work, having authors review the coding we've done, but a lot of it requires building a very complicated R shiny app, which now I built, but I need to reproduce it and edit it and push it out to every author. Then I would listen to something like pop music. Like I'm a big fan of Charlie Puth. I, I I think he's so funny. I uh, his his songs are very irreverent. So my husband and I like to listen to that kind of music too. I'm not a, a musician by training, so I won't tell you anything technical. I I just find his songs to be often whimsical, or irreverent is the best yeah. word. And okay. he has you know little videos of him taking a sound from anywhere in the environment in his office wherever and turning it into. A song like oh. the light switch song. He flips the light switch, and the the slip of the light switch is in the song. I'm I'm sure your listeners think I'm like twelve liking this kind <laughs> of, music. but it just I I you know a lot of the work we do it's so serious it is grueling it is yeah it's 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 hard uh, and you know you're making mistakes and the whole goal is to not make mistakes so listening to things that are lighter and irreverent um, is a nice compliment.
0: All right, so let's wrap this up. All right, I think. It was a great conversation with Linnea. It always is. We're glad to share the stories about the really great work that's happening, even though it's not a sexy new book. It is really important stuff,
1: right? yeah, yeah, i I don't think that uh, the nudge cartography is going to land on a bestseller list anytime soon.
0: <laughs> it might who knows? you know the will yeah. be
1: in every every airport uh, bookstore that we see. <laughs> Yeah. Well, but the work that, that Linnea and Duncan and the entire team at the CSS lab are doing is really important because it's going to lead to a better understanding of how we can successfully apply behavioral science in the wild.
0: Yeah, and it will also give researchers that map of where the holes are, right? Those blank spots still exist.
1: You know, fill them damn
0: <laughs> potholes up, you know, so they can figure out where, to need, where they need to go in order to fill in those potholes. And let's just say
1: that it's not a bad thing if science slows down a bit, right? In the end, I think we'll be better off. Yeah.
0: Before we wrap up, we'd like to introduce a brand new, well, not brand new, she's been on with us for a couple months now, a new member of the Behavioral groups team. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Caroline Schaefer. She is a, our new producer. Um, she's a podcast pro who joined us to help produce our episodes. In a way that we think, we hope, we keep our fingers crossed. We know, maybe we know, maybe this is the expectation effect in that we know <laughs> will take us to a new, better level. Yeah, she's got uh, great experience,
1: most notably as a program producer for Solar Winds, uh, which is a very popular tech podcast. And we want to say welcome to Caroline, and we look forward to many, many episodes
0: together. All right, here is an idea: you give some thought. To the map of your work or your life or your groove, listeners? What does it look like?
1: Mm. What would
0: happen if you step back and thought about all the things in your life or your work, what those things do, how are they part of your map? What would mm. that map look like? Where would the land meet the sea? Where would the mountains be? What, where are the roads that traverse in the landscape of interconnecting your different cities Where are those damn potholes? (laughs) That's a good question.
1: You might find that the potholes that you want to fill by laying out sort of where everything else is, right? But some of those potholes might bring you a lot of joy. They could bring up opportunities for growth. Who knows, right? But the places that they could be places where you want to spend more time. Maybe that's more important. And those places that need tending to or that need repair or where you need to build connections that don't currently exist. I think that maybe what we're trying to say here is that if you give it some thought, if you introspect a little bit on this, you might get some revelations about your own life.
0: Yes. So with that, we hope you're able to take some of this nudge cartography and put it to use in your own life this week and go out and find your group.